Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading from John 20, uh, verses 1 to 16 and verse 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. But they did still not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb and was crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Happy Easter. My name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And you know what, guys? We only get to do this once, uh, once a year. We've done it a couple times already. So you know what to say when I say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, or if it's been a while since you've been here, I want to welcome you here. And just to kind of update you, we are coming toward the end of a series that we've been uh, in to lead up over the last few weeks to lead up to Easter, and we've been calling it, If It's True, If It's True. And so if you're connected with church in any way at all, even vaguely, you are probably familiar with the story that was just told to you uh, this morning, that was just read for us this morning, the story of Easter. This story, we, you probably know, even if you're vaguely connected to church or have had some vague connections to Christianity, you know that the Easter story is the story about Jesus having died and risen again. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, you know, um, we all know that this is the highest holiday of the Christian year. This is our highest um, kind of most, most holy day, this Easter day, because um, we believe that we actually have um, a reason to celebrate. And not only that, but we believe that this is a story that we have to tell over and over and over again for ourselves. Not just for people that don't know the story, but for people that do know the story, because we actually believe that we need to have for ourselves like a fresh experience of this Easter story, 
um, over and over again. Why? Because if it's true, if it's true, it changes everything. It changes everything in our lives. Um, because one of the things that we believe about this story is that it is not just some kind of fairy tale or make-believe story that had some kind of make-believe characters that we can tell to sort of teach us a good moral about life. We don't believe this story is Mother Goose. Um, we also don't believe that this story is just a true story. And what I mean by that is we don't believe that this is something that, yeah, it happened in the past, it's historical fact, but really it has no real impact on, what, uh, on my life today. It has no real significance or meaning for my life today. And so it happened back then in a different place, in a different time, in a different culture. Um, but really, it doesn't impact my life or, or have real value in my life, other than the fact that we get together every once in a while to kind of commemorate it to kind of say, yeah, that was nice. It was, Jesus was a good man. He, he was a good guy. He did some nice things. No, we don't believe that the story was just true. Um, but we actually believe that this story, that this story of Jesus dying and rising again is as meant to be as true today, as true for me and you as it was for the people that first experienced this story um, firsthand. As true today as it was that very first Easter morning uh, when Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because if it's true, if it's true, it really does change everything. Not just for the people back then, but for us today. And you know what? Um, it's been, you've been told already, we're having a baptism service this morning. And this is one of the reasons that we celebrate Easter so often in the church with baptisms. Um, and Callista Tan is being baptized today. She's one of our youth. We're just thrilled that she's going to be taking that step this morning. Um, and uh, as we've done for the last uh, couple baptism services here at Upper Room, we are having an open call. And so if, uh, if you haven't been baptized, but you yourself are someone that can say, you know what, I believe that this story is true, that this story of Jesus dying and rising again isn't just a story that happened back then for people back then in a time back then, but it's a story that's actually happened for me, that I've experienced in a sense a resurrection life with Jesus, and now I'm following Jesus with my life. If you can say that this morning and you haven't been baptized, well, then I want you to know that the tank is warm and it's ready and it's waiting for you. And so you don't need to worry about as I step on cords. You don't need to worry about having a change of clothes or having all the stuff or what your makeup might look like after you come out of the tank. All that stuff is taken care of. We've got stuff out there and people will happy you. So I'm going to park that for now and we'll come back to it a little later. But one of the reasons we do a baptism service on Easter Sunday morning is because when you get baptized, this is actually what you're saying. You're saying, I believe this story is true, not just back then, but I believe that it's true for me. And as you get baptized, in a very real way, you're actually retelling that story, and you're saying, now my life is part of this story. As I go down under the water, it's symbolizing the, the death that Jesus died, and it's symbolizing the death that we ourselves died to our old way of life. And as we come up out of the water, we're symbolizing the life that Jesus lived when he rose again from the dead, and we're saying, I, am, I too am rising again with Christ into this whole new life to follow him. That's why we do baptisms on Easter Sunday, because we are telling this story, and this story is true, and it changes everything. And you know, one of the things I love about the story of Scripture is that it actually tells us, in so many places, it tells us the story that we've all had. Like, whether you're someone who believes in God, whether you're someone who follows Jesus or not, the story of the Bible actually tells us our own story. And more than that, it tells us the story, not just the story that we've had, but the story that God longs for us to have. It tells us the story that God longs for us to have. And the story that we just read this morning in John chapter 20, it's one of those stories. 
um, as I've been studying through this story for the last couple weeks, it's just been really striking me how this is a story that tells me the story of my own life, but more than that, the story that God longs for my life as well. And so there's, there's three things that I want to kind of unpack from this story that we just heard this morning. Three things about Easter, about ourselves, and about what God longs for us. And so the first thing that I believe that this story tells us is that we are all searching. We are all searching. Um, because that's what this story starts out with. It starts out with a search. Mary was searching for the body of Jesus. So in this weird kind of way, we actually have in the Bible the recording of the very first Easter egg hunt. Except it wasn't uh, an Easter egg hunt. She was hunting for, um, for a dead body. Um, so, <laughs> so Jesus had been crucified a couple days earlier, right? <laughs> On the Friday. Um, he had been crucified on the Friday, and, and the Saturday was the Sabbath, right? This, this, Jesus was a Jew. This all happened in a Jewish place. And so Sabbath was the Saturday. And, and, and Sabbath, uh, actually, ha- it, it began on Friday evening at sundown, and it would go for 24 hours, from Friday evening at sundown to Saturday evening at sundown. And part of the rules and the regulations surrounding Sabbath meant that you could do no work, not even the work of preparing a body for burial. And so Jesus was crucified and he died on Friday afternoon. And between the time he died and the time that Sabbath began at sundown, there was just enough time to get him down from the cross and to put him in the tomb. But there wasn't enough time to prepare his body for burial. And so he waited, or his body waited. Um, And this is where uh, Mary comes in. So she comes in as early as she can on Sunday morning. It says, while it was still dark. She goes to the tomb because she wants to prepare Jesus' body properly for burial. It hadn't, been, it hadn't had a chance to be yet. So she comes in while it's still dark. And she gets there uh, to find that the body is missing, right? And, and so before I go on, I mean, the question that comes to me is like, why was Mary even there in the first place? What was it about Mary that kind of brought her to the position that she would be the one of all people, that she would be the one that would go and anoint Jesus' body for burial. Because this was not a very pleasant task. It wouldn't have been a pleasant task in the best of circumstances, right? Having to touch a body, anoint it with oil and spices and do all this stuff. But the body had actually been sitting there now for two days. So it would have been starting to rot, maybe starting to smell. This would have been an especially unpleasant task. But not just that. I mean, we all know, we talked about this on Friday, right? How um, Jesus' death and his crucifixion was surrounded with all sorts of, of conflict and shame and and contempt toward Jesus. Um, there were all sorts of rumors going around about the fact that he might, his body might be taken, it might be stolen, so they had guards put outside the tomb, they had this big stone rolled over it. Why would, like Mary, so Mary was actually taking a real risk to herself, not only her personal safety, but even her reputation. That in going to anoint Jesus' body, she, she would be associating herself with the same shame and contempt that Jesus took upon himself when he died on the cross. And so why, why would she put herself in that position? Um, because the truth is, the reason why she did this was because Jesus had already, he had already changed everything for her. Um, you know, we don't know much about Mary Magdalene, but here's a few things that we do know. We know that she was, uh, very likely she was a prostitute, um, and we know from Luke chapter 8 that it says that um, she had actually been, she was being tormented. We don't know for how long, probably some time in her life she was being tormented by, it says, seven demons. And when, Jesus, when she encountered Jesus, Jesus actually healed her from these seven, seven demons. And so those two things alone, we don't need to know much more, but she was living the life of a prostitute. She was being tormented by seven demons. We can probably guess that she was 
a pretty broken woman when she met Jesus. And like I said, Luke 8 tells us that, that Jesus um, freed her, he rescued her, he healed her from the torment of these seven, de- seven demons, and he actually called her out of this life of prostitution. Um, he called her actually to join his own sort of ministry team. And so Jesus was with his disciples, and they were traveling, traveling around from one town to another, healing and teaching and, and, uh, and preaching and doing all the things that Jesus did. And there was actually a team of people that went along with them. Most of them were women, and they would help kind of care for the practical needs, preparing food and figuring out lodging and all that kind of stuff for Jesus and his team. And so Jesus rescues Mary out of this life, of prostitution, out of this torment, this spiritual torment that she was going through, and invites her to come and be part of his team. And so she had walked with him. Um, Not only that, but he had rescued her. And so he had already changed everything. So it's no wonder, it's no doubt that she was willing to kind of put herself in a little bit of risk to honor him, to honor him, to go and anoint his dead body. But that's kind of the point, is that he was dead, right? Like he had changed Uh, everything, he had rescued her out of all of this brokenness, and now Jesus was gone. And so, like I can imagine, you know, it would be like all of the pain, all of the brokenness, all of the confusion that that had existed in her life before she met Jesus the first time. It would have, when Jesus died, it would have come all rushing back into her life oh, I thought I was through this. I thought I was free from this. I thought I kind of had a whole new thing, and now he's gone. Who do I go to now? It all comes rushing back into her life. And now, he's not just gone, but he's gone, like his body is missing, right? And so she goes searching for the body now, because really, it's probably the only thing that there is left that she knows to do. But in this weird way, in this weird way, and I want you to follow me with this, I I, want to kind of propose that the searching that she was doing for the body of Jesus was kind of like all of the searching that she had been doing before she met Jesus in the first place. The searching that she was doing when she was looking for the body of Jesus was kind of like the searching that she had been doing through all of her life before she met Jesus in the first place. Why? Because what was she going to find if she found what she was looking for? What would she have found? If she had found what she was looking for, she would have found a dead body. That's what she would have found. And nothing would have changed. Like all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the confusion, all of the torment, it would still be there in her life. And friends, like I said, this is a story that doesn't just tell us a story about what happened back then. It tells us our own stories. And I believe that this is a story that is telling us that we are all actually searching. We are all on a kind of search in life. We are all searching for that something, call it what you want, for peace, for fulfillment, for joy, for self-actualization, for significance, for security. We're searching to be safe, to be loved, to be known. We're searching for that thing that will make everything all right. Mary had been searching for that all of her life, and now all of the pain and the grief of having seen it kind of disappear in front of her eyes was there. We're on that same search, friends. Some of us go about it the same way that Mary went about it. Some of us try to find this stuff through sex and sensuality and the the kind of high life or the party life. But there's all sorts of ways that we kind of go after this stuff. Some of us go after it through our jobs. We try to be successful in our work, to to climb the corporate ladder, to make a name for ourselves in in our company or our kind of our sphere of work. Others of us try to find whatever it is we're looking for through wealth. We try to accumulate stuff. 
We like to have nice things, nice cars, nice clothes, nice whatever. We like to have a lot of money in our bank account because it makes us feel safe. Um, others of us try to find it through rom romantic love. Maybe we put all of the weight in whatever it is that we're looking for in our marriage. Or maybe we go from one relationship to the next, kind of looking for that thing that will make me complete, you know? Others of us try to find it in health and beauty, and so we spend a lot of time working out or making ourselves look pretty or wearing nice clothes because that's the thing that makes us feel best, that makes us feel right inside. Some of us try to find it through parenting, having kids or being kind of the best parent, and so we read blogs or maybe we write blogs or maybe we um, kind of do all this sort of stuff, read all this sort of stuff so that we can be kind of the best parent that we can be. And friends, none of these things are bad things in and of themselves. None of them are bad things in and of themselves, but the problem is, we have a tendency to look for something in these things that these things can never offer us. We have a tendency to put a weight in these things that they cannot hold for themselves. And what that does is, sure, there are moments of glory. There are flashes of glory. There are times when any one of these things can bring great delight or great significance in our lives, yet it never stays. If it stayed, we wouldn't still be looking. Every one of us is still looking. And more often than not, the more weight we put on these things, often what it does is it leads us to the same kind of confusion, disillusionment, pain, grief that Mary was experiencing on that day when Jesus' body was missing. Friends, we are all searching. We are all searching for something. And I don't believe you need to be a religious person to actually understand this and to get, that, to get this. And one of the reasons is because I have this really cool quote from a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace. He wasn't a religious person, he was an atheist. He was a philosopher and a novelist, he was an award-winning novelist, and he actually spoke, uh, he gave the commencement address in 2005 at um, a place called Kenyon College. To the graduating class, he spoke a, a message. And um, this was actually less than three years before he ended up taking his own life. But here's what he said, here's what he said about the search that we are all on. He said, everybody worships. This is a non-religious guy, and he starts off by saying, everybody worships. And I think it's not a stretch to say worship is that thing that we are going to, that we are looking to, that we are longing for to give us the things that all of our hearts desire. Worship is that thing that our search is actually aimed toward, okay? And so he says, Every, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, he says. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you're gonna end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Friends, none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but the problem is we go searching for something in them that they cannot offer us. And when we do that, the reality is what we're, what, what we're gonna find is dead bodies. What we're going to find is what Mary was looking for. We're going to find that nothing actually changes. And the same pain or disillusionment or confusion or longing that has been in our hearts and is motivating that search in the first place, it stays. 
But the beautiful thing about Easter, the beautiful thing about the Easter story is that it doesn't end there, right? And what happened with Mary is exactly what can happen in our own lives, is that even though we are all searching, it is Jesus, it is him who finds us. See, because Mary, Mary couldn't find Jesus on her own. And what's really interesting as you read through this story, there are all sorts of like obvious clues about what had happened to Mary, and she missed them completely. And so one of the first clues is the fact that Jesus had actually said several times over the course of his life, he had said several times in kind of his, the group of his closer, closer followers, but also kind of to the masses, he said, I'm actually going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed, I'm going to be crucified, hung on a cross, and I'm going to die, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. He said this very specifically, more than once, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And so isn't it weird that Mary goes to the tomb, she finds the stone rolled away, she looks inside, it's empty, and she doesn't even pause for a second to say, huh, like, could it be? Um, Then um, it says that she, she looks inside and she sees two men dressed in dazzling white and they say, you know, why are you crying? What's going on? They start talking with her. She's seeing two angels in front of her eyes. This is like a direct act of God. And you know what she says to them? She says, where have they taken the body of my Lord? She can't even see that these are angels staring her in the face. Doesn't even have pause to think. And then Jesus, she, then Jesus actually comes and stares her in the face, right? And he says, you know, he says, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Says she mistakes him for the gardener. Um, more than that, she mistook him for an enemy because she said, please, sir, tell me where you have put him and I'll go find him myself. I'll go get him. I'll bring him back here. She thinks Jesus stole his own body. She thinks he's the enemy. She couldn't even see the obvious clues that were in front of her face. She could not find him, but he found her. And I love this because he calls her by name. He says, Mary because he knows her, right? Like he knows her story. He knows all of the brokenness and the grief and the pain that she had walked through, that he had rescued her out of. And he knows all of the brokenness and the confusion and the pain that she was living in, in that moment. And in that moment, he calls her by name. He says, Mary. Um, All of this pain and brokenness in her life, it doesn't keep him away from her. It doesn't offend him. It doesn't repulse him. It draws him toward her, and he calls her by name. I love this, that he calls her by name, because you know what? First, he didn't do this at first. First of all, he said, woman. And she didn't recognize him when when he said, woman. She didn't recognize that. You know why she didn't recognize that? Probably because Jesus never called her that in all the times that they connected with each other when he was alive. The rest of society would have addressed her that way. That's how women would have been addressed. They didn't receive the same kind of dignity or respect that men had in that culture. And so other men would have said that. Woman, Jesus wouldn't have said that. Jesus wasn't that kind of guy. He was in the business of lifting her up, lifting her up out of the lot in life that she had been dealt with. And in this moment, he calls her by name, Mary. He lifts her up out of the pain and the grief that she's experiencing, and that's when she recognizes him. That's when she sees who it is. She goes to him, puts her arms around him, says, Rabboni, teacher, you're actually here. I love this because it tells us our own story, friends. We are all searching, but on our own, we can never find Jesus. On our own, we can't, but it's him who finds us. 
And Jesus, is really, he really is the one that we are all looking for, whether we believe that we are or not, and you might argue with me, and that's okay. But the story of Scripture actually tells us that he is the only one that can truly give us everything it is that our hearts are longing for. We go looking for it in all other sorts of places, and Jesus is the only one. And we are so stuck in our brokenness that we refuse to find it in him. And that's actually what the Bible calls sin. Um, Sin is this bent in us that wants all the things, all the things that only God can give and yet refuses to go to God to get it. It's actually what makes us think that God is an enemy and not a friend. Sin is the bent in us, it's the brokenness in us that refuses to believe that God is good, that he's trustworthy, that he's loving, that even though whatever it is that's going on in my life right now, God is somehow in loving control over everything, and he's somehow walking with me. Sin is the bent in us that refuses to believe that, that refuses to see Jesus even when he's staring us in the face. But the Bible has another word, (laughs) it's called grace. And grace is the reality that Jesus calls us by name. Grace is the fact that even though there is something in us that refuses to find him, he comes and finds us. He calls us by name. He lifts us up out of our brokenness, friends. And that changes everything. It changes everything. Friends, this is our story. This isn't just the story that we all have, but it's the story that God longs for us to have, that we are all searching but he's the one who finds us, and that changes everything. You know what I love about this story? It's probably something that um, you'd miss uh, the first time reading it, or maybe the first 10 times reading it. It's certainly something that I've missed, but then once you see that it's there, you're never going to forget it. I love it that Jesus was mistaken as the gardener, and that this whole thing that was taking place was taking place in a garden. Can you think of another time in the Bible when there's a story of a great gardener walking and talking with people in a great and beautiful garden. Yeah, the story is meant to do something for us as we hear it, right? It's meant to bring us all the way back to the creation story, to the very beginning. When God speaks all things into existence, he creates Adam and Eve, people, man and woman made in his own image, and he creates this beautiful garden for them to enjoy. And then it says he walked with them and he talked with them in the garden. We're given a picture, friends. Jesus is called the gardener. He's in a garden talking with Mary. It's totally meant to bring us back to the creation story. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead, friends. Thank you. I don't usually call out for amens, not like, not like Vijay does, but this is worth an amen. Jesus has risen from the dead, friends. Amen. Yes, thank you. The new creation has begun. He is the great gardener. More than that, the New Testament calls him the new Adam. He is the second Adam that has begun this whole new work that God is doing with resurrection life. And in a very real way, Mary is the new Eve. Not individually. She's not individually the new Eve to be kind of the the husband and wife relationship with Jesus. But she, for a brief moment, for a little while anyway, she was the only member of the church. And she represented all of us. And do you know what we're called? We're called Christ's bride. 
We're called the bride of the new Adam. So we, in a very real sense, when we, when we are following Jesus, when we enter into this resurrection life that he has given to us through his resurrection, we are called the new Eve. He is the new Adam. We are the new Eve. This is a picture, friends, of the whole new creation that God has given birth through the resurrection of Jesus. So cool. He's changed everything. And so Mary knows now nothing will ever be the same. He's never going to leave me again. My life will never go back to the same kind of loss and confusion and grief that it once had because everything has changed. The new creation has begun. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I love it. I love this story because it tells us, tells us the story that we've all had. Whether we believe in God, whether we, whether we believe this story or not, it tells us the story that we've all had, but it tells us the story that God longs for us to have. The story is this, friends, that I was searching, but he found me, and that changes everything. I tried to make this rhyme. I was trying really hard to make this rhyme. This is the best that I could do. I was searching, but he found me, and that changes everything. That is the story of Easter, friends. <clears throat> We're going to move in a few minutes to a time of baptism. I love this because this is, like I said earlier, this is what Callista is saying. And if anyone else comes forward, this is what you will be saying if you choose to get baptized this morning. You are saying that I believe that this is true, that this isn't just a fairy tale, a story that doesn't have any real basis in truth. It's, just, it's not just another mother goose story. It's not even just a story that happened back then, but it is a story that has happened to me. Jesus has died and risen again to life for me. You are saying yes to this story. And you're actually telling that story. You're saying, I am actually being caught up in this story myself when you get baptized. Callista's going to come up in a few minutes and she's going to lead the way. Like I said, if that's where you're at this morning, friends, if you're at a place and you haven't been baptized in the past and yet um, you know that this story is your story, then I want to invite you to be able to come forward. There's certainly no pressure, no obligation. This isn't about kind of making any um, 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 manipulative calls. But you know if God's talking to you. Either way, God has already spoken to Callista. She's going to come up and she's going to get baptized for us. And so I'm going to invite her to, uh, she can start to get ready herself now. We're going to sing a song. The worship team is going to come up and lead us just in a song of response to this Easter story. That this isn't a story just for back then. It's a story for me. It's a story for today. It's a story for all of us. That I was searching, but he found me. And that changes everything. Amen? Amen. As we were singing uh, these two songs, the first song that... Um, we sang, I think it had a chorus that said, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, we lift your name higher, higher, higher. And it just struck me that that's exactly what he does to us when he calls us by our name. You know, he lifts us up. And I love it because Mary, she, she, like I said, she was staring Jesus in the face. And as soon, she didn't recognize him, but as soon as he called her name, Mary, boom, something broke. And she saw him. And we need that, you know, like oh, Mary had heard her name by Jesus over and over again. We need that. We need to hear Jesus call us by name over and over and over again. And so as you leave on this Resurrection Sunday, my blessing for you is that Jesus would call your name and that you would hear it and that whatever it is that needs to be broken would break so you would see him. Would you receive that this morning? Amen.